What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to a throwback podcast of Observations, the show about something. This is a recording of an early episode of Observations, recorded between November of 2018 and May of 2019. While some of the entertainment news covered in this early podcast may be out of date, many of the stories Rob shares are still relevant today. If you're curious about what's covered in this episode, you can look at the description we've included with the podcast for more detail. And if you're hankering for something a little more current, please keep in mind, we release the most current episodes of Observations at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, the day following the stream. And we share our Spoiler Saturday shows on Wednesday mornings at 10. Observations streams nearly every day at 2.30 p.m. Pacific. You can catch Rob and the other imagination connoisseurs of the post-geek singularity live at that time. So sit back, Relax and travel back to the good old days of, well, you know, just a few years ago. And enjoy this special episode of Observations, the show about something. Observations with Robert Meyer Burnett. What is up, my imagination connoisseurs? It is I, the notorious RMB here. I'm hoping you can hear me loud and clear. I checked my my mic, and it seems to be working. So I will assume that you can hear me. But anyway, welcome to this. All of you that are part of the post-geek singularity, welcome to this. I'm redoing chat 37. My ultraviolet chat was riddled with, I couldn't get it started right. There was all kinds of noise. People were all over the place. You know, it wasn't, plus I wasn't that prepared. I went on late yesterday. It wasn't, wasn't one of my best chats. So I'm, I'm replacing it with this chat, chat number 37, which should be, so my old 37 about ultraviolet will probably be 38 tomorrow when I've done a little bit more prep and I, I've got a more of a handle on where I was at. So thanks for bearing with me. Anyway, I want to give you guys a skippy update. Today is the, she has one more course of antibiotics and then the, Doctors must look at her again. I've got to go back to the vet. God knows how much that's going to cost. And I also want to uh, thank everybody that uh, there is a GoFundMe. I put up a GoFundMe for Skippy because, you know, we live in a house with two teenage girls and having a $2,000 hit, not something that we expected. So I've really, really appreciated everybody who's contributed to that GoFundMe. You can still contribute to it. Skippy appreciates it. I certainly appreciate it. And let's hope she does not have to have her tail amputated. I'm hoping she doesn't because it's she's she's become much more uh, loquacious, and she meows at the door and wonders why we're not letting her out. And she's demanding that we take the cone off of her head, which we really don't do, uh, because she will lick her tail, which she can't do because it can't get infected. But I am I am she seems to be getting better. Uh, because she's much more annoyed than she was on Sunday night when I thought she might be dying. But she's better now, and I want to thank you for all that help. Um, so I've been quite surprised 
by all of you. I've been quite surprised by the reaction I received to my previous chat about my favorite word, verisimilitude. Um, the idea that I discussed verisimilitude being my favorite thing when it comes to movie making or storytelling, and the idea that you have to make your audience, basically in a nutshell, great verisimilitude inspires great suspension of disbelief because it seems real. Even when you're creating a fictional universe uh, and you're, you're completely building up something like Middle Earth or the Star Trek universe, even the Star Wars universe, which, which bends the laws of physics frequently, you still believe it. And it's, it's been my favorite thing. It's, it's, it's the art of verisimilitude has been the one. If someone said, Rob, what is it you're trying to, to do your entire life with, with your movie work or film work? What is it you want to do? And that is to create verisimilitude and, and that feeling in my audience that whatever story uh, that I'm trying to tell, they believe it. And what what's very interesting is some of you may know that uh, in addition to all the other things I'm doing, I'm working on my friend Lucas Kendall's short film, Sky Fighter, which is a 14 and a half minute or 15 minute with credits short. Uh, it's a science fiction short that's based on his feature length script, Sky Fighter, that he's going to direct. And I guarantee you he is going to direct it because uh, he has never directed anything before except this short. And he's done an exceptional job. He did a short version of Sky Fighter that he crowdfunded, which I edited. And I'm getting visual effect shots. We're getting to the, the final stretch where the film is done. It's shot. It's edited. We're just waiting to get in the visual effect shots so we can do the final mix. It's been scored. Uh, it's a really terrific piece of work and I can't wait to show it to you guys but what I love about it again and I'm struck by Tobias Richter and his his mavens at the Lightworks which is a German visual effects company that I work with Tobias previously on my feature film Tango Shalom he did a couple of effect shots for me on that you'll see that soon hopefully that'll be coming out later this year that's a feature film that I produced and I edited um, called Tango Shalom. It, it, people want to know what that's about. I like to call Tango Shalom. Here's how I describe it. It is it, it is an indie Jewish spiritual quest family dance comedy fable. When was the last time you saw one of those? But I produced it, one of the producers, and I'm also the editor. Uh, but So I'm working with Tobias on these two projects. And when you get visual effects in, you want them to be believable. You want them to look real. And Tobias's work has, every time I get a new shot, we got four shots in today. Uh, I think there's like almost a total of 100 shots that he's doing for the film. But it's wonderful to be collaborating with very talented artists. And when they send you individual shots to get excited, not only about how great the, the, the shots are, but how much they convey a sense of verisimilitude. But I've been very uh, touched and actually interested by a lot of you who have written into me and you've commented on, on uh, the video and wanted to know, a lot of you have asked me to pontificate more on this idea of verisimilitude. And I, you know, I thought I did a pretty good job of it, but something happened today that I think fed into uh, the whole conversation. Now, as many of you know, I have an affinity for the Fast and the Furious film franchise. Um, I, I also, as you all know, I, I love... I call it the drift, but I love Fast and Furious 3, Tokyo Drift, the first film that Justin Lin came on and 
Uh, it, it had really no ties to the first two Fast and the Furious films until the very end. But it was a story unto itself. And I really like it because I, I love everything Japanese. And it's about a very, it's a fish out of water story. And if you forget that it's part of the first two films and you watch it on its own, there's a lot of joy to be had. And of course, as the series went on, they made it more of a team film. And I, I call I call Fast Five the Citizen Kane of the Fast and the Furious franchise. And as people know, as it's gone along further, as you got to Fast Six and Furious Seven and uh, the fate of the fate of the Furious, which is Fast and the Furious Eight, um, the series got increasingly more ridiculous and I would like to say untethered from reality. Uh, that is an understatement, I know. I mean, it really, like with Fast Five, a lot of people would say that the climax of that movie, that these two cars could not pull this very heavy bank vault through the streets of of, of Rio de Janeiro the way they do in the movie. Well, here's the thing. That's probably true. But as I've I've talked a lot about with verisimilitude, you get a couple of asks. And I bought into those asks. Up until Fast Five, I bought into the Fast and the Furious franchise, the verisimilitude of the Fast and the Furious franchise, even though in the Fast and the Furious uh, or Fast and Furious 4, you have to believe that there are these gigantic tunnels that go underneath the border between Mexico and the United States. I mean, there are Donald, Donald Trump's worst nightmares where you can actually race cars through these tunnels to do drug running uh, across our border. In which case, a wall wouldn't help because these are underground. <laughs> these are subterranean tunnels that you can race cars through. Ridiculous. I mean, who's going to – the? how long did those take to build? Anyone who worked on the Big Dig in Boston or worked on underneath the Alaskan Way Viaduct in Seattle knows that <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do, build tunnels under the ground that are that big, that can, that can accommodate traffic. Well, so anyway, so as, 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 as many of you famously know – after Fast and the Furious 8, they announced they were doing Fast and the Furious spin-off movies. And of course, today, the trailer for the first of those movies dropped Hobbs and Shaw. Actually, it's called The Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Now, I'm not going to lie. Despite all my protestations about Han Solo, not Han Solo from Star Wars, but Han Solo, like the city soul. Han Solo, played by Sung Kang, who was introduced in Fast and the Furious 3, and who also died in Fast and the Furious 3, but was brought back for 4, 5, and 6, because they turned out to be prequels. We find out at the end of Fast and Furious 6 that Han was actually murdered by Deckard Shaw, who was played by the great Jason Statham, and in Furious 7, and then in Fate of the Furious... Uh, they go, they they take him on, and then he becomes a friend. And Han Solo is famously unavenged. His death is unavenged. And everybody kind of forgets all about it, that one of their family was killed by the new character. Which does not sit well with me. No justice for Han, no peace. But anyway, uh, what I wanted to say was, so the Hobbs and Shaw trailer comes out. And I was curious. I was really curious because one of the directors of John Wick directed it. And I was wondering, like, which kind of direction? I mean, The Rock already, when they brought Dwayne Johnson into the series in Fast Five, you know, he was already larger than life. He was sweating perfectly in every scene. And I was like, okay, you know, 
it's fine. I liked his character. I've liked his character in the franchise. They turned the whole thing into an espionage thriller. It became a, a different genre of movie entirely because how far how far can you take street racing in L.A.? Although I, I miss the alt, multi-ethnic mix of the street racing, and that's been uh, even though it becomes globetrotting like the Bond franchise. The Fast and Furious franchise is more globetrotting than the last Bond films have been, <laughs> which is saying something. So I was very curious about what kind of a movie Hobbs and Shaw was. I had no sense of what kind of a movie this was going to be. Uh, you know, could it was it going to be like a, a straight up spy thriller? Was it going to be sort of was it going to be bordering on the ridiculous of the Fate of the Furious, Fast Fast and Furious Eight? What were we going to get? Well, what we got has has become completely untethered <laughs> to any kind of reality. And they finally just said, well, what if we put a superhero in it? And let's make the superhero a supervillain. Because after all, only a superhuman could take on Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson. So basically, they Idris Elba comes back. Or he, he's never been in the franchise, but he, he shows up as the new villain uh, in this film. And he is shown as literally being a Captain America-esque super soldier gone bad. Now, uh, He's like the next stage of our evolution. He's part Terminator. He's part RoboCop. He's part superhero. He's all Idris Elba. But this is the heavy that they've decided to bring into Hobbs and Shaw. And the film is completely, at least based on the trailer, what we've seen, the Super Bowl trailer, is completely over the top. I mean, it's kind of, it's gone off the deep end. It's, we're into Bugs Bunny Roadrunner territory, you know, Wiley E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. It looks like Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are Wiley E. Coyote. There's two of them going after the Roadrunner played by Idris Elba. There is not a shred of believability in this film. It's completely over the top. Completely, I mean, it's as insane as you can possibly imagine. Now, the question is, for a verisimilitude lover like myself, who admittedly is a tremendous fan of the Fast and the Furious franchise... Fast Five being my favorite of the films, but uh, actually uh, the best of the movies is Fast Five. My favorite, I think, is my favorite's Fast Five too. But I love the drift. I love the drift. It's kind of like Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Really, it's that kind of a of a thing for me. So, how did I feel about this trailer? I'm torn, to be honest. As as a film fan and a fan of verisimilitude, uh, I was upset. I wanted to see more of a grounded, down-to-earth, believable. I was kind of hoping, if you guys haven't seen The Bodyguard on Netflix, pardon me, not The Bodyguard, that's the Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston movie, just Bodyguard, the BBC series Bodyguard with Richard Madden, Richard Madden, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. If you have not seen Bodyguard, it's amazing. I was kind of hoping that we would get something along the lines of bodyguard which is probably silly of me to even consider that that's what we we would be getting knowing where this franchise has been and where it's probably going to go in the future as we joke on the john campy show as john campy said it's only a matter of time before they take their cars into space i don't know why they would do that but you know they'll go full-on moonraker at some point in this series so i was watching this movie and i'm thinking i'm watching the trailer and i'm like do i like this now, apparently, the reaction to this trailer has been great. You know, people that uh, I was just talking with John moments ago, and he loved the trailer. Many people loved the trailer. Um, I didn't. 
love the trailer. Now, I can look at that trailer and go, wow, that's a bonkers time at the movies. You know, if you want to see your action thrillers more like The Roadrunner uh, and Wile E. Coyote, the more power to you. But to me, I, I, I watch this film and I, I hark back to what are some of the classic action movies of all time? What are the movies that ha- have endured? The, the real test of a great movie is does it transcend the time it was made and does it keep entertaining audiences decade after decade? Raiders of the Lost Ark certainly does. Die Hard certainly does. Many of the James Bond movies certainly do. Um, and I think one of the reasons that Die Hard is such a great, great, great film is is it combines over-the-top action with great character development, including great villain character development, but it skirts the line of verisimilitude. You believe Die Hard, even though, you know, watching John McClane run across broken glass might strain credulity at some point. Uh, I think what you get with the Die Hard franchise, or actually not the franchise, pardon me, but within in Die Hard 1, you get great verisimilitude. And that's why it works. You believe the film. There's there's not a misstep in Die Hard. Even when it gets, you know, as goofy fun as it gets and it's got over-the-top characters that probably couldn't exist in real life, Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson's interplay, uh, you still believe it. There's nothing in Die Hard that makes you disbelieve, whereas the planes crashing in Die Hard 2 get a little hard to take. Uh, they brought the series back down to earth with Die Hard with a Vengeance. But for the most part, Die Hard has endured because it's so much fun. It's got so many great characters. It's so beautifully directed. But most of all, you believe it. But they still give you those great moments, like Argyle in the limousine parked in the basement with this giant stuffed bear that 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 John McClane brought into town. Um, and that's why those movies endure. Now, I looked at Hobbs and Shaw... Here's Gilbert, ladies and gentlemen. I looked at Hobbs and Shaw, and I was perplexed by it, I must say. There is not one shred, there's not one ounce of reality in Hobbs and Shaw, even the way it's photographed. Every single scene has is, is lit, and it, it's completely in a fantasy land. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because two of the great science fiction movies of all time, here's Gilbert, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to have you, are Alien and Star Wars. And Alien and Star Wars, even though you hear sound in space, you believe it all because the lived-in world, especially of Alien, you believe it because it feels so real. I mean, even the even the, the lighting inside the Nostromo or the lighting inside the Lars farm, farmhouse, the, the Lars homestead when they're having dinner, it looks and feels real because cinematography can make or break the reality of a film. If a film is overlit, has too many colored gels and things like that, it can actually destroy the reality that the filmmakers are trying to create. But there is absolutely no pretense of any kind of reality in Hobbs and Shaw. Now, that to me is a conundrum. Uh, do I like that? Is that what I want to see? I mean, it depends. I mean, there have been there have been movies like I famously love. There's two wacky Italian science fiction movies that I love that were made two decades apart. One is Wild Wild Planet. If you haven't seen Wild Wild Planet, go to YouTube, type in Wild Wild Planet trailer. I think it's from 1965. Watch that trailer <laughs> and tell me you don't want to see that movie. And then, of course... 
famously Star Crash, the Luigi Cosi or Lewis Coates directed science fiction film that stars Caroline Monroe, Marjo Gortner, David Hasselhoff, and Joe Spinell. These are two science fiction films that are goofy fun that I people would say that most people would say these are trash. Why would you watch these? And you know what? Wild Wild Planet is actually a better movie than Star Crash, but I love them both. Um, Star Crash is actually on Blu-ray and I own it. But um, so, you know, you guys, I'm telling you, Hobbs and Shaw, though, I looked at Hobbs and Shaw and I'm 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 torn. It's really caused me to really examine myself, to really dig deep and look inside. What does this mean for me? <laughs> I mean, as much as I love the Fast and the Furious franchise, clearly what you're seeing I mean, there's some ridiculous action set pieces. The whole movie, I mean, they have a giant car spinning around and uh, uh, it, 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 it's insanity. Now, here's the thing. When there's no reality left in a film, when the stakes don't exist because everyone is Teflon, you know, apparently you can jump off of a building as other guys are running down the side of the building and just, you know, fall at maximum velocity and just take somebody out and still fight and have enough wherewithal to tell your partner in crime, fuck you, who's sitting in the elevator. I mean, there is no pretense of reality. It's gone all the way out the window. Now, I'm torn because while I admire the audacity of it and the filmmaking and how much sheer fun it is, is that fun for me? Like, am I able to check my head at the door? And I have a hard time because I I prefer my just, – it's just a personal preference that when you're watching these kinds of action films, they have to they have to remain somewhat grounded. Otherwise, there's no tension. There's no – I get bored. I get bored if if the action is too over the top and too, too – just too cartoonish where none of this could possibly happen in the real world because then there's no stakes and there's no real story because you know the story that you're watching, nothing really of any consequence is going to happen because you're just supposed to be entertained with the action set pieces. And again, I understand people are going to go like, well, Bob, you you know, you love the James Bond movies and you know James Bond isn't going to die. No, but other people could die and the James Bond movies create stakes that you believe in. You know, and I, I've I've always had a problem with modern action films, and and it, it really is a, a it's it is part of the modern age. I don't think that that the great action films that we grew up with, especially like look, even in Beverly Hills Cop, that's a crazy comedy, is always grounded. And the reason Beverly Hills Cop works is because the the comedy is situational. And if you don't remember Beverly Hills Cop, it begins with an incredible action sequence where a truck full of cigarettes uh that they're trying to steal to get away from paying the taxes uh is careening down roads and crashing into cars and eddie murphy's axle foley's in the back swinging around and swinging out it's an incredible action sequence that is not assisted by cg in any way as soon as they started using cg to enhance action sequences they really sort of lost that's when verisimilitude started to be taken away because you were no longer constrained by physics which is what action scenes were constrained by up until the advent of, of, of CGI. Now, so I'm watching this trailer. Now, I should be loving this. I should be loving what I'm watching. And I wasn't loving it. And it kind of bummed me out that I wasn't seeing 
the kind of verisimilitude that I wanted, even a shred of it. Like even within the confines, look, the, I believed Fast Five. I believed it with, 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 with the, the, I was able to suspend my disbelief and watch these two cars fling this very, very heavy vault around the city when we, I knew that those cars could never pro- probably drag that heavy of a vault behind them. They wouldn't have been able to move no matter how jacked up those cars were, no matter how, how murdered out they had made the transmission. You know, there's no way that that, that could have happened. But I bought that. I, the one ask was I believed, I believed in Fast Five. Fast Six, if everybody remembers, there's the endless runway. That even that, I'm like, I didn't believe that. That's when the Fast and the Furious franchise sort of jumped the shark for me. And while I enjoyed the accomplishment of Furious 7 and James Wan being able to continue on even after the, the, the tragic death of, of series regular Paul Walker, the man who was, was basically the Keanu Reeves character from Point Break, Paul Walker was transposed playing Keanu Reeves in the first Fast and Furious. And Fast 7, the, the jump from one building to the next, while I appreciated it and it made for a great trailer moment uh, i didn't believe that too untethered from reality for me and again uh, i found i found myself fighting when i saw aquaman i was fighting ver- my love of verisimilitude with what i was being presented on screen but because i grew up loving ray harryhausen movies and i love godzilla movies i was able to go with aquaman and deal with the complete balls to the wall fantasy environment that that film presented to me. And I really enjoyed it. Now, the problem is I'm not being presented with the kingdom of Atlantis in, in fast and furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. I'm being asked to believe in a lot of unreality in action scenes. And if, if you don't have reality in action scenes, I ceased, cease to enjoy them. I cease to enjoy them. Some of my favorite action scenes, like I talked earlier about the truck chase from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love that truck chase. Robocop attacking the 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 cocaine factory in the first movie. Um, I love, I dearly love the raid, or as I like to call it, the rad, the two raid movies, the raid and it's called the raid redemption in America, but the raid and the raid Two Barrendal, or as I like to say, the rad Two, even radder. Um, those are martial arts movies. And there's a lot of, of fighting there that that strains credulity as well, but I love that. I love that anyway. I mean, I love, I love that kind of stuff. But it's got to You've got to give me a little bit of 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 reality. You got to You got to keep me on the ground. I, I, keep me reaching for the stars, but keep my feet on the ground, as Casey Kasem might say. And I don't know. I'm no. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold off until I see Hobbs and Sean. Don't get me wrong. I will be there opening day, probably going to a press screening with a picket sign that says no justice for Han, no peace. But I'm still going because it looks like a lot of fun. But again, when you talk about verisimilitude, even the the gels and the, the colors that are in the movie, you know, John Wick goes, there's that great scene when he goes to that Euro trash party in John Wick 2. You know, and he, he, he goes through the cat, the catacombs of, of the place that they're having it at busting people and, and just shooting everybody you can in the head. The the way they shoot those movies with the with the high contrast and and you know they play it's very they're very stylized, but there's a lo- enough black, you know, in those scenes. The color black, the dark black, sometimes the blacks are too crushed. Gilbert, stop. Stop, buddy. And uh 
that I I believe the cinematography. It's not too over the top. It's new, not too. It doesn't look like if I licked the screen, it would taste like cotton candy from the local fair. Whereas Hobbs and Shaw looks like it does. It's not set in any kind of a real world I've ever existed in in my life. Now that has been something that's been true. Look. The first Fast and Furious, directed by Rob Cohen, is is very stylized. But you go and look at what Justin Lin, in, Lin did in Tokyo Drift. The most unbelievable stuff is how they're drifting through a parking structure, and I believed it because they were really doing it, and and that's all they needed. I mean, watching these cars barely touch, just kiss the sides of of the on ramps and things in up as they corkscrewed up this this parking garage. I believe that that didn't strain credulity to me. I mean. Whereas Hobbs and Shaw is completely science fiction. So the question that I have, that I'm asking myself, that I'm grappling with, you know, some people grapple with their identity or their sexuality or their religious preferences or, or, or their spouses or whatever. I'm grappling with whether or not Hobbs and Shaw is going to convince me that it's a good movie and well, and if, can I enjoy it? These are the things, these are the existential crises that, that grip my psyche, people. Is Hobbs and Shaw doesn't have enough verisimilitude for me to enjoy it? What do you think? Am I out of my mind? I could very well be. Probably. Some people would say yes. Indeed, I am out and out, out of my mind. You know, uh, but then again, I think uh, Hobbs and Shaw probably had more verisimilitude than last night's Discovery episode. But that's something else that we will talk about later at a later date, not today. So... I didn't see any super chat questions come in, so I'm going to go back up to the the top of this chat. I'm going to answer some of your questions. Bring on any questions or comments you have about verisimilitude, about anything that has to do with this topic, because I uh, am very interested in it. And again, my lifelong pursuit of creating entertainment with verisimilitude uh, is very important to me. So let's talk about that. Um. Lee Zigo says, hi, Rob, have you seen the Art of Mondo book? Gilbert, stop barking. I just got it, and already is one of my favorite art books. I've not seen that book, but I would love to get it. The Art of Mondo, I would assume it has all of the Mondo posters in it and things. I'm not, I'm a fan of the posters in in theory, but I don't like the fact that, that I, look, I get limited edition and all that, but if you want one of those posters, you should just be able to buy one. But they create this inflated sense of, I collect original one sheets and original movie posters from around the world. I, the Mondo posters, as cool as they are, uh, they don't interest me as a collecting thing because they've completely created their own artificial values and environment. Uh, but, but that's fine. I'd love to buy a Mondo book, though. I'll get that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Lee Zigo says, I remember Richard Donner was all, also very fond of verisimilitude. That's where I really got it from, to be honest. He spoke of it a lot in interviews related to Superman the movie. Have you ever met him? I did. First of all, um, what Lee Zigo is saying is correct. The first time I really heard the notion of verisimilitude was because of Richard Donner and um, because of of what he was talking about, how you'll believe a man can fly, the ad line for Superman. That was sort of his overarching ethos when he approached the Superman character. He wanted to make sure that people believed in Superman. And that's when I first heard, I think, in interviews in 78 about this idea of verisimilitude and what it all meant. But yes, and I have met Richard Donner. Um, when I worked at Warner Brothers, I was the producer's assistant for Free Willy while it was in pre-production until it went to um, uh, until it went to Mexico City. And Free Willy was a Donner 
film. So I met Richard Donner a number of times. I was in and out of their offices every day for months. Uh, that was something I did while I was working. Warner Brothers, I had left feature production and then I worked for Joel Silver. And then I'd worked for Richard Donner's company on Free Willy for Jenny Lutugan, Lauren Schuler Donner, and Penelope Foster, who were producers on that film. And I loved Richard Donner. He was great. I mean, he's still great. He's still around. Um, he's a, he's just a tremendous guy, real larger than life. And of course I, I worked on the Warner a lot. So I was there when lethal weapon three was being made and, and, uh, did, I had met, I have met Richard Donner a number of times and, and it was in his office a lot, actually. Uh, Rob Irvine says, God damn, the Orville was good last night. I didn't see it. We had, we had, uh, people over last night, so I will have to take a look at it today, which I will. Uh, Kush says Jordan Peterson discusses verisimilitude in his second lecture of maps and meaning. Why do we suspend disbelief while watching Pinocchio? We know these are drawings of a talking puppet and a cricket. Cricket, You know, for those of you who don't know, Jordan Peterson is uh, part of what they now call the intellectual dark web. He, like uh, 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 Brett Weinstein, who was a teacher at my old college, Evergreen, a lot of, a lot of formerly leftist progressive intellectuals have now become more centrist and they sort of left the far left because of the persecution they've been feeling uh, because of identity politics. And it's really interesting. I mean, uh, look it all up, all these people like Jordan Peterson and his ilk. Uh, I'm a fan of a guy named Gad Sad, uh, but I will read that because I have not read that book and I'm interested in, in reading that book. I, when I went to Evergreen, if you guys don't know what happened at the Evergreen state college in 2017, when the, the idiot, students gripped in their identity politics decided to take over the school it was the antithesis of my experience at the same school 30 years ago but it was appalling what happened at evergreen but i was in a program at every evergreen called the making of meaning and it was uh, my first year there and we had what were called coordinated studies programs you wouldn't take just standard classes you would take a coordinated studies program and you'd have a number of professors all examining the idea of the making of meaning, but you'd have different classes from different disciplines, but sort of examining this, this overall idea. And the central idea is how do, how do human beings give themselves meaning? Where do we derive meaning from? Not just from the morality we find in our religious texts, but meaning all around us, familial connections, friendships, that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by that kind of, of discussion. I didn't know Jordan Peterson talked about that. I would, I would look up, I'll look up that lecture. That interests me. Um, uh, Paper James says, I hope Orville gets a season three. It deserves to be renewed. I hope so too. Uh, Vesna asks, so Tango is almost done. Great news. It's getting there, but we just, we're raising money piecemeal for post-production. Again, kids, if you want to make a movie, remember 33% of your budget goes to post. Don't tell me any differently. I know better. Trust me. Um, uh, Film nerd Jamie says that Hobbs and Shaw trailer was next level stupid. Yes, sir. That's what I'm here for. I'm I'm conflicted deeply. It was next level stupid, and that's too bad because I I I think that the Fast and Furious franchise again, you learn the wrong lessons as you go along. But Furious Seven made more money than any that that one. But James Wan's Fur, Furious Seven made, believe it or not, get this, one point five billion dollars at the global box office, and that was you know that was one of the first um, that was one of the first things that. Uh, uh, I'm hiding a user because he's bothered me. Um, 
Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's see. Um, uh, King of Scotland says, am I the only one who stopped watching the Fast and Furious after Tokyo Drift? Dude, watch Fast Five. Watch Fast Four and Fast Five. or Watch Fast and, Fast and Furious, which is four, and watch Fast Five. Stop there. Um, you can stop there. It'd be good. Um, Rob Irvine says, Fast Six and Seven are good. Fast Five, Six, and Seven are good. Ah, Tom, Tom sent me a super – Tom uh, Grocut sent me a super chat question I apparently missed. So I'm I'm answering again. He says the super chat question was, "Who do you think would win in a fight in the MCU? Thor versus the Hulk? I'm betting on Thor after Infinity War. I hope the cat's doing well. I'm a cat owner myself. Well, thank you for that, Tom, and thank you for the super chat. Um, that's a good question. I mean, Thor is in fact a god. He's the god of thunder, and even though the Hulk was affected by gamma radiation, uh, he's not divine in his power. <laughs> even though Thor's technology, I get it. But I think Thor might eventually, especially with Stormbreaker, I think Thor might have the edge. I mean, look what happened with Thor and Thanos. Thanos took Thor out, and Thanos took Hulk out. I mean, Thanos really took Hulk out. So I think Thor could beat him, probably. Rob Irvine says F8 fast fate of the furious was dumb i you know i agree i i kind of tuned out the climax was just again the climax was a portent of things to come uh uh uh, and i think they've taken the wrong lessons away at least from the trailer um let's see Mm, a future doc 84 says kush it just becomes a different franchise so it depends on what you like yeah uh, League of Ego says, wasn't keen on the idea of a fast spinoff movie, but that trailer was fun. Haven't seen one through four or eight, but five through seven are just big, dumb fun, in my humble opinion. If it's anything like that, I'm down for it. See, I think that I think that a lot of people are, and I don't begrudge them. I don't begrudge them that. You know, I like Roadrunner cartoons. I just don't want to watch them all the time. So I think that that, um, I, again, I, I'm torn, man. I got to see it. I got to see it. Uh, uh, Prepper James says yes. Pike. Oh, people are people are talking about Pike a lot in this chat. Yes, I like Anson Mount as Pike. Um, <laughs> Stubble McShave says, "Can you explain the verisimilitude of Moonraker?" Well, here's the thing about Moonraker. Moonraker had stupid jokes in it. You know, there's a lot of stupidity in it, but I didn't disbelieve because what was interesting was when Moonraker came out in 1979, the space shuttle was new. You know, I don't even think the space shuttle had gone into space yet, the real space shuttle, in 79. I don't remember. I believe the Enterprise, which was the first space shuttle that was never supposed to go into space, was unveiled in 76. So, you know, Moonraker is one of those movies, especially because I saw it as a kid, so I was a little bit more forgiving. But I believed it. Like, I believed, I, I mean, the only thing, as an adult, I'm like, how did Hugo Drax build that entire base in the middle of the Amazon with all those Moonraker shuttles, how did he get them and secreted into their underground headquarters? Uh, did it didn't look like they were they were there was enough room to build them down there? And didn't satellite photos? Didn't they? Then they then people know what he was doing. I mean, that's a big construction project he had down there in the Amazon basin. So, <laughs> if you overlook that, perhaps that was the one ask. I believe that there were space marines. Sure. And that he built a, a a city in the stars in orbit that no one actually could see because it was radar blinded. Sure. No, I think the problems with Moonraker are more about tone. <laughs> see, but then again, here I'm having this basically an argument with myself. 
<laughs> what do I love? What do I not love? When does verisimilitude become important? And when do I throw it out the window? When does that happen? It's, it's, I know, I know. Um, Kush said bodyguard was really good. So much tension. I agree. I love bodyguard. I thought it was, I thought it was great. Uh, Scott Dolson says, Robert, can you think of any reason why Star Trek Discovery would insist that it takes place in the prime timeline and is not a reboot? This seems to be a cornerstone of their problems. Not the only one, but a lot. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't understand. I, I mean, I'm sure it has to do with legalities. It's so stupid to me. Like, I can't, I can't believe Star Trek Discovery is real Star Trek simply because they're telling me that it's in the prime timeline. I'm like, you know, when Deep Space Nine went back to visit the time of Kirk and Spock, they actually used footage from the Trouble with Tribbles to do it. <laughs> so, so, and and when you see the Enterprise, they built a new model of the Enterprise for that episode in seventy six or ninety six. But it looked like the Enterprise. I didn't have to beat there. I didn't have to ask myself. There's no look. The problem is they don't want to make it prime timeline because then it's there's a really interesting article I read about authorship and Star Trek, which I think I'm going to post on my website, The Burr Network. One word: theburnetwork.net. It's a great article that I didn't write uh, that talks all about authorship in Star Trek and, and deals with J.J. Trek. It's fascinating reading. It's a long one. It's like 22 pages, but I'm, I, I think I'm going to post it because I, I, it's really worth reading, and I really I really like that, that article. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know why they went that way when clearly it's not. There's nothing about – I can't get – as somebody who followed Star Trek for my entire life and, and a lot of Star Trek – you get the Star Trek encyclopedia – it all gives the the new one that came out two years ago. The the two volume Akuta, the Akutas wrote a, an updated encyclopedia. The great one of the great things about Star Trek was the universe itself that you could follow these threads and you could watch the evolution of starships and and it felt real. I believed it. I don't believe I, I believe nothing in Star Trek Discovery and their their discussion of the D six. I mean the D seven battle cruiser that they introduced was the, was ludicrous. It was just ludicrous. It made no sense. Did you not watch Enterprise? I mean, come on. I hate that. I just, oh, anyway, I'm, I don't want to get off on a rant. Because uh, <laughs> Star Trek Discovery, that's an episode unto itself. Uh, yeah. Uh, Chad Edwards says, apropos of nothing, but I just found Free Enterprise on Canopy, a streaming service associated with libraries. Great. <laughs> it's probably an old version, but yeah. Uh, I, I can't wait to get Free Enterprise out for real on a nice Blu-ray uh, set and 4K as well. Uh, Prepper James says Fast and Furious is too over the top for me, but the first ones weren't. I mean, Fast, Fast and Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, Tokyo Drift. It really started to go off the rails on in, in the fourth film of the franchise. Um, Dylan Chavez says everyone. <laughs> Eventually, they're going to have Dom fight Dracula, like John said, probably. Um, Scott Dolson says, do you have an agent? If not, how do you find your varying jobs? Is it just networking? I used to have an agent. I was with William Morris for over a year, and they got me no work. Um, I've had to find all the work that I've had. Usually, it's based on people's word of mouth or friends that I have known that want to want to work with me. Uh, I've been lucky. I mean, I've been really lucky. I, I You know... Agents are great if you already have sort of a name for yourself, but uh, I've I've always been stuck sort of in the indie film world because some of the things I do have have been commercially successful. Most you know have been at a certain level. I've never been able to break through that ceiling, but you know I'm still trying. Maybe I will have an agent one day. I'm not against them, 
But, um, you know, the work that I've done, in my experience, work begets work. So whatever project you're working on, for instance, right now, I don't have an agent, but I uh, am a producer on Tango Shalom and I edited Tango Shalom. It's an interesting story. I'm going to do a whole episode on on making Tango Shalom. But the way I got the job was <laughs> a random happenstance talking to somebody at a hotel waiting for their Uber after an, uh, an American film market event. Random. Um but work begets work, I've found, and especially in the entertainment business. The more work you do, eventually you're going to find other people that you continue to work with, and it 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 works like that. Kush says Predator is timeless. Predator is a is a movie that even though you've got larger than life Arnold Schwarzenegger, McTiernan goes a long way to creating verisimilitude. The pre- uh, Predator, not the Predator, Predator, Die Hard, and Hunt for Red October are to me three. Pro- uh, prime examples of creating verisimilitude in in you have your action movie thriller you have your sci-fi thriller and you have your military thriller and they are full of verisimilitude great examples um ron hall says uh diehard raiders speed three the hard way that's a good one i like that um <laughs> beatmaster says the avengers will bring down thanos with dom and his wrench consider endgame spoiled Listen, I saw, um, I saw, uh, I believe I saw, I mean, I did see, yeah, some super chat questions come in. Uh, Ron Hall uh, for a super chat. Thank you, Ron. Brother Rob, I believe Chris Evans as the charm, levity, and gravitas to be the new Indiana Jones. Your pick. You know, that's actually a really good, um, that's a good choice. But I, again, I don't know. I, I, you know, my problem with Indiana Jones, is, it's, I guess it's not a problem. When a character has been allowed within our pop culture, we saw this with Star Trek and now with Indiana Jones. We saw Harrison Ford in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And if they do indeed make a fifth Indiana Jones film with Harrison Ford and and he's he's 75 years old or whatever, I'd love to see an old indie movie because I would have watched an old Henry Jones film uh, well, uh, uh, in, about Sean Connery. It's hard for me to accept another actor in the role because to me, that actor, I watch that character age and sort of end. So to bring them back, I never, I, I, it's hard for me. The Bond franchise was different because they reinvented Bond. You didn't see Bond grow older. They played a little bit of that with Never Say Never Again, but that wasn't an official Bond film. It wasn't part of the Broccoli family Bond films. But, I, you know, I don't know. Chris Evans would be a good choice. Uh, I think uh, Chris Pratt would be a good choice. But I, there's just nobody like Harrison Ford. Just like William Shatner, it's I can't get my I can never rap. Chris Chris Pine, as much as I like him as an actor, and I think he's a terrific actor, I never believed him as Captain Kirk. He was playing a, a, a copy of Captain Kirk, and Zachary Quinto as Spock made me believe in him even less. But um, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite, uh, Chris Miller says, what's your favorite collectible? I love the Joker you had on John's channel. That was actually the Hot Toys DX. It was the DX Joker, Jack Nicholson from Tim Burton's Batman. It's an incredible, that figure is incredible. That's one of their special edition figures. But to be honest, I think my favorite collectible that I own is right there. It's this, my Master Replicas enterprise that's the signed nimoy and shatner edition has a plaque that was signed by each one of them just because the starship enterprise has been my favorite thing um since i was a kid and i do love this polar lights model as well those um those are i just i love those so much 
but they're probably my favorite. This master replicas one lights up and the engine nacelles turn and it's it's just really, really, really cool. Uh, I really, really liked it. Um, uh, uh, Lee Zigo asks, what do you think of Jodorowsky's Dune? Would you have liked to see that version completed over the new one? Love Lynch's version, though, severely truncated. Yeah, you know, if anyone hasn't seen the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune and to see what he was Alejandro Jodorowsky was trying to do in that film, uh, it's pretty bonkers. And I recommend seeing that because it's a lot of fun. Um, Prepper James says a con miniseries would have been pretty cool if done right, but not with the current leadership. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 there's been nothing in Star Trek in the last 10 years that has made me believe that anybody who's a custodian of the tra- franchise now really understands Star Trek as a whole. What we're seeing is this weird reconceptualization of Star Trek that it doesn't, none of it's worked. I mean, even even when people say the first seasons of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and and Voyager were rough, they still felt like Star Trek, even though they weren't, you know, Star Trek, the next generation, even though season one is really difficult to get through, there are still some really good episodes like Heart of Glory and I, I love 11001001 with the Binars. I think that's a great episode. Uh, Coming of Age isn't a bad story. Uh, there's There are some good things in there that feel like Star Trek. Nothing I'm watching especially in Discovery, feels like Star Trek. But a lot of people are watching Discovery, and that's their first experience with Star Trek, and that's fine. That's fine, but for me as a long-term fan, it's really hard. It's re- and it's, get- it's getting harder to watch every episode. Uh, Vesna says, at least Aquaman is the king of the sea, but Hobbes and Shaw should be ordinary human beings, and I never saw a scratch on them. That's Yeah, it's a real problem. They're, they're like Teflon heroes. You don't, you don't believe that there's ever any real threat in those movies. And I understand, you know, they're cartoons, and cartoons are fine, but do they work well? I don't know. Um, uh, Sral Amiz says, oh, my God, Ultraviolet, way better than Eon Flux. I don't care what they say. (laughs) I don't know about that. Eon Flux and Ultraviolet, that's a really interesting case study in verisimilitude. Um, Yeah. Uh, Grimash says, what do you think is more possible? Keanu Reeves making it to the Mission Impossible franchise or Tom Cruise going to John Wick? Either way, those two would make it. You know what? I would love to see. Look, it's like comic book team-ups. You know, eventually they had, I remember when Superman versus Spider-Man came out in the, in the oversized Treasury edition. It was amazing. It was an amazing thing when the Teen Titans teamed up with the X-Men and Dark Side and Dark Phoenix were the villains and villainess. I mean, I love that. Why couldn't someone bring John Wick into the Mission Impossible franchise? Come on. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I'm in. I think that would be funny. Uh, Vesta asks, uh, how is Skippy doing? I gave a, an update at the top of the chat. Skippy is doing much better. She looks pretty great. She has her last course of antibiotics tonight. She's been on them for the last week. Um, she's kind of miserable in her in her cone of, of shame. Uh, and she mules at the door. She wants to go outside a lot. We can't let her outside, but the doctors have to look at her. But I think she's going to be okay. And once again, I thank everybody that that hit me up on my GoFundMe campaign to, to help her. If you if you haven't, you want to, hey, please do. <laughs> we could use it because it's still we're out a ton of money. But you can't. She's family. Um, let's see. Tom Highland says, Rob, I'm also a fan of everything Japan. Have you ever been dying to go? I've never been. I almost went to Japan in 2010 because I wanted to see the opening of the live-action Space Battleship Yamato movie. That's how crazy I was. I was going to go. I I flew to England, and I saw Skyfall 
the James Bond movie Skyfall. It was the 50th anniversary Bond film. And I went and saw it in London when it opened. I met some friends there from Norway. Um, they came down. My friend Charlie DeLazarek came. My friend Emma came. I mean, we had an international crew going to see Skyfall at the Odeon Theater in Leicester Square. That's how nutty I was. But before that, I almost went to Japan. I've never been to Japan. I love Japanese robots, the Sola Chagokin super robot collection that Bandai puts out. I love Veritech fighters, you know, Valkyries from Robot. I, I have so many Japanese toys. That, that Robotech helmet I got from Japan. If you guys want to go to a website that will destroy your pocketbook, even worse than Hot Toys, I know that seems crazy, go to Hobby Link Japan. H-J-L. Hobby Link. Yeah. Yeah. HLJ, HLJ. Anyway, hobbylinkjapan.com. Go there. Don't go there. It's just horrific. I've been going there for almost 20 years and it's just, it kills me every time. Dying to go to Japan. Um, so, yes, sir. I'm, I want to go. Uh, Pre Life te- <coughs> Teaser says Idris Elba's <coughs> best character to date was Stringer Bell from The Wire. Could not agree more. I love The Wire. The Wire is fantastic. Idris Elba, pardon me, I'm going to have a little uh, lemonade. Idris Elba, it was amazing in that. It, uh, what an incredible show The Wire is, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Uh, Aaron Johnson, Rob, the Coens are fond of verisimilitude. The reason I ask is because there's a film I bring up often in comparison to De Palma's The Untouchable, Miller's Crossing. I love Miller's Crossing. And Aaron, you're right. I mean, But I'll tell you something else. The Coen brothers have skirted verisimilitude well. You look at a country, uh, no country for old men. You look at, I mean, Miller's Crossing is a film that plays with verisimilitude a lot because it creates its own little world, but very, very believable. Miller's Crossing, if you guys haven't seen Miller's Crossing and you like period gangster films, it's incredible. It's so good. Albert Finney is so good in it. John Turturro, everybody is, is so good in that film. The score is great. It's amazing. Watch Miller's Crossing. Goalie Dad 33 says, hi, Rob. Hope all is well. Did you happen to watch the 2009 Schmodown Awards? They gave the late, great Sean, John Schnepp some Lifetime Achievement Award. The old footage was heartfelt. You're in many clips. Yes, I thank you for that. I did see that. It was it was tremendous. Uh, and I teared up when I when I saw that. They did a great job on the Schmodown doing that. Uh, Will DeBeard Reviews says, I have a couple of friends who had to suffer through the goings-on at Evergreen. It was awful. Yeah, it really was. I mean, if you want to see... Like I value cogent and informed discourse and, and people have always said to me that I can argue with someone like John Campy on the show and have it respectful. There's no reason why you can't have dis uh, you, you can't have respectful disagreements with people. I, I've never understood why people get angry. The, what I see in the fan community today boggles my mind. Like I used to go to science fiction conventions when I was a kid and I would get into hours-long conversations where we would debate the various merits of were the Avengers more powerful than the Justice League of America? <laughs> you know, these are the conversations. And no one got mad about it. It's so strange to me because I, I, I have a feeling, you know, back in the day, I think fandom was – there was a lot less media-only fans. I mean, to me, you when my Star Trek fandom, I was reading as many books about Star Trek and essays about Star Trek and thinking about – Star Trek as I was watching the shows. And I feel now there's a lot less scholarship in fandom, but maybe there always was less scholarship. I just feel that that when you when I was a fan growing up, you know, I've told said this before, books were were just as important as movies or television shows or comics. 
And and I got just as excited for the latest Stephen King book to come out or the latest Star uh, Trek novel to come out or something like that. And so I read a great deal and I read a lot of nonfiction stuff, a lot of a lot of uh, things about storytelling and essays about you know the uses of enchantment and all kinds of things. And I feel like we've lost a lot of of that. You know, people talk about how oh yes, I understand that. Star Wars is the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell's it, it, it takes all of Joseph Campbell's theory. People say that now without having read Joseph Campbell. And that bothers me. It becomes apparent when you start talking to people about these things that they're not as, and, and I'm not saying, you know, everybody should enjoy fandom the way they want. I mean, people have accused me of being a gatekeeper. Do I seem like a gatekeeper? Look, I just love talking about what I love. I will not detract from anyone for loving what they love. Um, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong for loving Star Trek Discovery. I'm not, even though you are. But I'm not going to say that. Um, I think that there's a lot of people... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think there's a lot of people that have come to science fiction, especially Star Trek, because of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. And I think I think that's great. But I, I feel like... I feel that people... And, and, and am I not the first person to explain how if you've grown up in a world where Jurassic Park already exists, already exists, that... I can't expect you to go back and watch a movie like Valley of the Guanji where cowboys discover a T-Rex. You know, you, you're not going to be able to do that. I mean, you really, even as much as you can put aside your preconceived notions, it's really hard to go back and consume the pop culture of 50 or 60 or 70 years ago and expect to get the same thing out of it as you get today. The difference is I, I'm a part of a generation, I call us the OGs, the original geeks, where we were there, where the most influential geek properties first came out. We were there and saw them, and, and so we were able to experience what it was like to live in a world where they didn't exist, and then suddenly they came into existence. And if you if, if you experience that, if you were a kid like me that grew up on a steady diet of 50 science fiction films and monster movies and universal black and white monster films and giant ant movies like them or the beginning of the end with giant grasshoppers or Godzilla movies or all of those things. And then you saw a movie like star Wars. And then you saw alien and you saw the hells of pop and violence and Dawn of the dead. And you saw the rise of the slasher film and you saw back to the future for the first time. You, you were there opening day when blade runner opened as I was your, you watch these, these things expand exponentially uh, as computer technology and special effects technology grew. I was there for all that as, as makeup effects technology grew, everything from you watched in a couple of years, we got Jaws, Bruce the Shark and Jaws. We got the Alien, the Xenomorph. Then we got John Carpenter's The Thing. We had before that, we had American Werewolf in London and The Howling. Then we got The Thing. Then we got it, Carlo Rambaldi's E.T. You know, and as you moved, you got finally got things like David Cronenberg's The Fly. I mean, the, the effects technology was was growing by leaps and bounds. And if you experienced all that, Part of being that kind of a fan, because we didn't have the internet, was you were reading a lot. You were reading interviews with filmmakers. You were going out and and you had to like look for all this stuff because unless you, it would just sometimes you didn't know it was even coming out. It would just show up in the theater unless you read it on the pages of Starlog or Fangoria or Cinefantastique. So it was a different world, and and I think the world now with with the internet and we have this. You know, we have everything in the world now, so we almost have nothing. That nothing marinates. You know, you watch something, and it's like it, I feel like I'm on a on a treadmill now, on that, a never ending treadmill where I have to catch up with everything, uh, which is kind of rough. 
You know, it's 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 a new world, people, but it's a great world. I sit there and I think to myself, I'm getting everything I could possibly want. I get the, the best action figures, the best model kits, the best video games, the best video transfers, everything that I loved as a kid, I'm now getting the best of the best of it. Uh, what I'm not getting the best of is is thoughtful discourse from the fan community. Sure, there is some. I still get thoughtful discourse from the fan community, but when you watch the toxicity online, I mean, I would love to have a great debate with somebody about Star Trek Discovery, and yet people take my criticism of it as a personal attack on them rather than sit there and go, huh, I wonder why he says that. Like, I've never thought to myself when somebody has a, an interesting criticism of something that I wouldn't come back. Like, like people are like, how can you criticize the writers personally for the writing of, of Star Trek Discovery? Well, they wrote it. That's why I'm criticizing them. I'm like, they wrote it. I want to be able to watch a TV show. And I, I get that with Game of Thrones. I get that with Breaking Bad. I get that with Better Call Saul. I, I get that with Ozark. I get that with the, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's so much great media being created today where you really feel that the people that are working on these shows are really thinking through what's happening. You know, and someone can say, well, you know, in the last season seven of Game of Thrones, I mean, the the distances being covered by the dragons are they can't it, it, things are too close together now. I get it. I understand. I will overlook that because I understand the the, the vagaries of production and the speeded up the timeline. And all. I understand, but but that to me doesn't interfere. I can still suspend my reality. I can verisimilitude still exists. But when I watch Star Trek Discovery, I feel so much of it is 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 half baked, and I just don't believe it. I'm watching this going, "Come on, guys." This is it's cut scene writing, you know, cut scenes in video games. They don't have to be in depth. They just have to move the story forward. And you wait and you go, wait, what? You don't say that in a video game because the new the new level starts. And you start playing. You're getting shot at or whatever. But when I watch these Star Trek episodes and you, I think about them, I'm like, hey, wait, wait, what? Wait, that can't be true. They just say stuff to get past what they should normally stop and think and go, well, wait a minute. We can't do that because that doesn't make any sense. They don't care anymore. It started with Star Trek 09. Where where the the plot just needs to move faster, like I've always said, one of my favorite things that I I can't stand about Star Trek 09 is I've said this before, time time it when they find out that Vulcan is under attack when Kirk is being disciplined for the Kobayashi Maru incident when they're in there, all of Starfleet Academy gets assigned to starships they they get bussed up to the to orbit they get put on starships and they make it to Vulcan while it's still being attacked and all in the space of like an hour I sit there and go how long would that take. How long does it take to get to Vulcan? It's like ridiculous, but they don't care. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. So anyway, yeah, I saw a few more, a uh, oh, couple more um, uh, super chats came in. I'm going to go down to the super chat. Stubble McShave. Uh, thank you, Stubble, for a super chat. What is your question? Oh, dude. Stubble McShave says, I saw that Javier Bardem was cast as Stilgar, leader of the Fremen. I wonder who will be cast as Peter Peter DeVries. It's Peter DeVries, actually. Peter DeVries. Bad Dor- Brad Dorf was great in David Lynch's Dune. What Stubble is referring to uh, is that today it was announced that uh, Javier Bardem uh, has been cast in the role that Everett, Everett McGill played in the original Lynch's Dune from 84, which is Stilgar, who's leader of that group of Fremen um, on the planet Arrakis. I unbelievable every single casting notice that comes out about dune i get more and more excited i mean this thing is going to be epic with this cast they should just make all six of herbert's dune books i mean not all the characters around but it's an incredible incredible bunch of people amazing 
Amazing. I can't, I'm so excited for Dune. I, I, I'm so excited for it because, you know, it's like, kind of like Game of Thrones in space. I mean, it was that epic. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read, the original Dune. Actually, all six of Herbert's Dune books that he wrote before he passed away and then his son took over with Kevin J. Anderson. I, or Kevin J. Anderson? Kevin Anderson. Read Dune, guys. If you, Girls, guys, everybody here, read Dune. It's one of the greatest science fiction novels ever written. You'll see why I get so excited about it. The movie does not do it justice, even though I like the movie. Emmett Beach comes in with a super chat. Emmett, thank you. Where are you on Space 1999? It was during the original run, and in the 70s, it totally looked like plausible future tech. Here's the thing. Space 1999 is a really interesting show. Um, It's a little lethargically paced for today's audiences. But to me, I loved the first season of it. And I recently, there's a UK Blu-ray set that has both seasons on it, which I have. They've only released season one in the United States. Space 1999 is a really schizophrenic show because at, when they did season one, they 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 got Jerry Anderson stepped back kind of like, interestingly enough, the same way that Gene Roddenberry stepped back from the production of the original Star Trek. For season three of the original Star Trek, they brought in Fred Freiberger to take over as the executive producer of the show. They brought in Fred Freiberger to take over on the second season of of Space 1999 as well. So that's what Star Trek and Space 1999 have in common. And I think he really dumbed down the show. The first season of Space 1999 is really w- interesting. I mean, it's it's got it's weird and and there's this re- there's this idea that they play out through the show that divine intervention. I mean, verisimilitude again, the the moon would never have left our solar system much less gone to other solar systems if you really think about it. But there's this idea that there is literally divine intervention pushing them along, and uh, that that is bared out at the 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 final episode of the first season is called the Testament of Arcadia. God, I'm a nerd. But anyway, you guys have to watch watch Space 1999. But the Eagle Transporter, which I have a model here that I'm going to build, I have a 22 inch. The Eagle Transporter is one of the great sci-fi ships of all time, and it does look plausible. They really took a lot. Uh, Jerry Anderson took a lot uh, from 2001 from both UFO and Space 1999. I love Space 1999. The Eagle still turns me on. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, well, I've got some more questions. I got to actually have to run, guys. I'm going over an hour here. Um, uh, the King of Scotland says, Rob, have you read the sci-fi novel The Perfect Day by I- This Perfect Day by Ira Levin? No, but Ira Levin wrote Rosemary's Baby, and I would be totally interested in reading that book. You know what? I'll get that. I'll get that. Anybody, I read a great deal. So if you have a book that I should read, I'm really interested. Uh, I didn't know Ira Levin wrote a science fiction novel. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read that. I'm going to go order it from Amazon now. Uh, Tom Highwin says, my kids love watching all the old Godzilla movies with me. They're seven and four. Okay. First of all, good parenting on you, Tom. And that's the perfect time because kids have no long kids. When, when, when kids are young, you know, they don't discern whether or not they're not into verisimilitude yet, nor should they be. And if you start kids early on this stuff, first of all, I'm a firm believer, not having children myself. So let me tell you about parenting, everyone. But I've seen this with some friends of mine. Um, curating media is always a good thing. Like I had uh, my friend David Starzik would show his young boys. They're they're in college now, college age now. He would show them like Three Stooges and Marx Brothers and old James Bond movies and I remember when when his son Liam was like ten, we went and saw Goldfinger in the theater. So this ten, I think it was ten, maybe it was eight. 
So his first experience seeing, and he had already loved James Bond movies, but he'd never seen Goldfinger. He'd never seen a James Bond movie in the theater. We got, he got to see Goldfinger, you know, the third Bond film from 1964. You know, he loved it. And he came out of the theater and he was like, James Bond wore a hat, which I thought was really cool. Um, but yeah, so, so that, uh, I, you know, show your kids all of these things when they're young, because by the way, my favorite report back, but my favorite, 60s Godzilla movie without a doubt was Godzilla versus Monster Zero when the aliens of Planet X bar- borrow Godzilla and Rodan to fight against Ghidra on their planet but really they're just going to send them both all three monsters are going to go down to earth it's so good show them Godzilla versus Monster Zero if they haven't seen it already it was my favorite as a kid my two favorites actually Rodan and Godzilla versus Monster Zero those are my favorites uh, which are great. Uh, Yancey Evans. Thank you. Yancey sends in a super chat question. He says, not a question, but just thank you for the channel and all your work over the podcast, like Inglorious Glorious Trexperts. Thank you for sharing your passion. Well, Yancey, that's, that's very nice of you to say. That's very touching. That's a very, a nice message to take away on this Friday afternoon. You know, it was John Schnepp who made me do this really. He was saying to me, he always said, go out and John Schnepp reveled in people's creativity. He loved to see what people would do with their creativity. It never threatened him. He loved to experience it. And John was always telling me that I should do my own YouTube show. And I've been getting that a lot. Uh, so I appreciate it's fun to share my passions with people. And I, I seem to be developing. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't have you guys here as the post-geek singularity community that we're building. So hopefully you'll share these videos and, and help me help me sh- you know take my passions and make it happen. That would be the flash dance philosophy. For all of you, <laughs> take your passion and make it happen. Kush, Kush sends a super chat in. Live long and prosper to you, sir. Um, uh, Kush says, Maniac also has a strong 80s vibe to it. Thought it was one of the best Netflix series of 2008. Uh, that was Kerry Fukunawa. Fukunawa, the director of True Detective Season 1, did all of Maniac. I have yet to catch up with that. I really want to watch that. I really think Jonah Hill and, and Emma Stone would be great. That looks great to me. I can't wait. Uh, at first, when I read your question, I'm like, "You mean Maniac, the 1980 Joe Spinell film, directed by Bill Lustig with with Caroline Monroe in it, with effects by Tom Savini?" Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. King of Scotland says, "I know this is silly, and I'm setting myself up for failure, but I'm putting all of my hope in the future of filmmaking into the new Dune, dude." To me, Dune is shaping up to be the most epic science fiction film ever made. That's what I'm hoping. I love Blade Runner 2049. I loved Arrival. I love the tone. I love the verisimilitude uh, to bring it on home. I can't wait. Uh, Riley Comics says, what do you think of Farscape? I've been watching uh, OG original Star Trek, and I love it. I'm about to start TNG. Well, report back. Tell me what you think. I always love it. I love to hear from people now who go back and watch the original series or Next Generation and hear what they have to say because it's. I'm curious to see, again, if you live in a world where the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park exist, can you go back and enjoy something like the original Valley of the Guanji or Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I always feel that way about the original Star Trek because a lot of people can't get past the lighting. They can't get past the visual effects. They can't get past the theatricality of it all. So when people go back and watch it, I'm always curious to hear what they think. So so report back, and I want to know what your favorite episodes are. But I like Farscape a lot. I think Farscape, Farscape was wacky fun. Uh, it was more of a fantasy show than science fiction. I mean, it had a, a spaceship that was alive that gave birth, you know, Moya. How crazy was that? Um, 
<laughs> and speaking of Moya, Bunyan Snipes says Space 1999 jumped the shark with Maya. Yeah, but Catherine Shell, man, she was one of the girls, the Bond girls in um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I like Maya, but you're right. And her father, her father, the head of Psycon, was um, was uh, Brian Blessed, who played Voltan in, in Flash Gordon, and who was he played uh, um, uh, which he, he was in uh, I Claudius, playing not Marcus Aurelius. He was playing somebody else, uh, or maybe it was Marcus. I forget. Uh, let's see. Uh, Haskell 420 uh, just said, uh, thank you for the super chat. He says, Rob, oh shit, Javier Bardem is joining Dune. I know, man. That's what we're talking about. How can you believe this? I, could this movie get any better? I don't think it could get any better. Um, uh, you know, who are they going to, who are they going to cast? I think we need to know who, you know, who, who is Fade Ralph going to be? Someone said Alexander Sarsgaard should play him, which, because Stalin's is, I think that'd be kind of interesting if they did that. Who, who is going to play, um, Peter DeVries? I don't know. I mean, hell, if they brought back Brad Dorf to play Peter DeVries again, I'd be like, hey, bring it on. That would be, that would be totally, that would be, who are they going to get to play Gurney Halleck, you know, and, and, uh, Duncan Idaho? Who are they going to get to play Duncan and Gurney? I don't know. Those are, those are really important characters. I, I just, I, this movie just keeps getting better and better as I, as I, it goes along. I cannot wait, uh, for this film. You know, I, 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 and I want each episode to be like three hours long. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, Bill Barkley says they, they sent up far, they set up far, uh, Farscape in an episode of SG1. Did they? I didn't know that. That could be really interesting if they did. Um, uh, Aaron Johnson said Brian Blessed was also in Black Adder with Rowan Atkinson. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Um, so, uh, let's see. I think I'm going to come to the end of this chat. Uh, oh, there's a few more. Uh, Bill Barkley says, in fact, Landau and his wife, Barbara Bain, were in Mission Impossible. They were. Barbara Bain and Martin Landau, they were married. They were both in Mission Impossible. That's true. Uh, Captain Robert April says, the vast majority of Space 1999 was originally worked up as a planned second season of UFO. That is true, too. I have a McFarlane book about the making of Space 1999 that goes into that quite in depth. Um, For those who don't know, one of my favorite TV shows ever was the 26-episode series UFO that ran from 69 to 71. It was made by Jerry Anderson, who made Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet and Joe 90 and Supercar and Stingray and all of those great Super Marionation Mary- shows. It was his first all-live-action series. It's incredible. I love UFO. I was involved for a while with uh, trying to get a, a UFO reboot off the ground with Bill Hunt and I. Bill Hunt and I came up with a a whole storyline for UFO that would actually incorporate the original mythology because uh, UFO, you basically see UFO takes place mostly in 1980, but you go in the first episode, you see 1970s and you see premise of UFO is earth is being visited by a dying race of aliens and they're kidnapping human beings and reusing their organs to keep humanoid life alive. You never really see them, Kind of, they're kind of like the Misterons and Captain Scarlet, but you never see them. But UFO is so great. It's and it's got some of the most. It's got one of the most devastating hours of science fiction television ever done, called "The Question of Priorities." Uh, if you only watch, if you only watch three episodes of UFO, watch Identified, which is the pilot, and then watch Confetti Check AOK, and then watch a question Question of Priorities. Just watch those three episodes. I mean, there's other great episodes of UFO, but just watch those three episodes, man. Woo, some good stuff. Uh, James LH sends in a super chat from, I guess, the UK. Hey, Rob, enjoy listening to you talk about things I grew up with. My childhood is from 70s and the 80s. Hearing you talk about Star, hearing you talk Star Crash, keep defending Blu rays. 
fight the power, man. Fight the man. I will. I you can pry. I've got still got laser discs. I mean, I don't watch them anymore because it's NTSC video and NTSC video is garbage. You guys in the UK had PAL that was better anyway. You know, as you know, because your TV looked better. Looked better in France too. They had C cam. We had, we had shitty NTSC, but now we've got HD and 4K and it's great. And uh, wouldn't StarCraft be great on 4K? Probably not, but I want it anyway because I think it'd be great. So anyway, I'm gonna jump off this chat now. Thanks for being here on a Friday. I will be back tomorrow. I'm going to redo my chat about uh, Ultraviolet, the the end of the Ultraviolet program, the 30 million people that have been using Ultraviolet to store over 100 million movies in the cloud. Um, uh, Oscar Casillo says, one episode of UFO we did see was the alien who crashed and visited a blind woman. That is actually the episode, a question of priorities. And I don't want to ruin what happens at the end of that episode, but man, is it devastating. Uh, anyway, that'll be the end of this chat for me. Thank you guys for being here. I really want to hear what you think about verisimilitude. But anyway, uh, thanks again for being here. And as always, remember, you people of the post-geek singularity community, remember, every person you meet has a story to tell that you have yet to hear yet. That's not right. Every story, every person you meet has a story to tell that you haven't heard. All you have to do is listen. Listen. 